This is Top Floor, episode 98. You can find the show notes at topfloorpodcast.com forward slash episode forward slash 98. Welcome to Top Floor with Susan Berry. This weekly podcast right up to the top floor features tangible tips and excellent stories from the experts and characters who elevate hospitality. And now your host and elevator operator, Susan Berry. Welcome to the show. Craig Everett will do almost anything to avoid having a real job. Craig started his first adventure travel company, Left, Right, Repeat, as a university student and has followed that up with a series of businesses that meld entrepreneurship and travel. As co-founder and CEO of Holabob, Craig creates technology that connects people with things to do. Today, Craig and I are going to talk about the experience economy and tech-forward tourism. But before we jump in, we need to answer the call button. The emergency call button is our hotline for hospitality professionals and random people off the street who have burning questions. If you would like to submit a question, you can call or text me at 850-404-9630. Today's question was submitted by Emily. Emily asks... I love this question for you. (laughs) What can I do to get my older employees to take me seriously? I am younger than most of them. So Craig, having been younger than most of my employees for most of my career, I definitely know where Emily's coming from. Tell me, what is your advice? How do you feel about this question? Well, it's great, great to be here, Susan. And that was uh, straight, straight in the deep end. Um, <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, I think, well, so I, I left university and have had uh, employees older than me uh, for my entire career. And I think pretty much every single employee that we have at Hollywood is older than me, bar, bar four or five. So it's a question that I can definitely relate to. Um, I think you always have to be a sponge for knowledge, right? And you can't, you can't, uh, I think the most dangerous people in the world are the people that think they know everything. And I think as a a kind of younger person, uh, it's very easy to fall into the trap of thinking you have to know everything um, and having having to pretend that you know everything. Whereas I think people will respect you a lot more and they'll listen to you a lot more if you have the... Uh, humility and humbleness to to say that I don't have the answers and to listen and to try and form a judgment based on what people tell you. So uh, that would be my my kind of one bit of advice is don't go around pretending that you know everything because that's going to get you into more hot water um, than 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 you can probably you could probably handle and and try and treat people with uh, or try and not take yourself too seriously and uh, and always be a sponge for knowledge. That is such good advice. And I wish I had it when I was starting out because I thought I had to know everything. So I would work until like midnight trying to memorize stuff so that if somebody on my team would ask me a question, I would know the answer because I definitely did not know the answer. I should have asked you this uh, several years ago. That would have helped me out a lot. The story of your career and company really starts, I think, with meeting your co-founder, Angus Hardy, on a ski trip during your first year at university. 
explain what happened and how that led to Whiteout Ski. Yeah, so Angus and I, as, as Angus and I went to the University of Glasgow in, in Scotland, and uh, we used to go on university ski trips. We're very lucky to have been able to go on these university ski trips, but to the south of France. Um, and Angus and I both went on the first year university ski trip, not knowing anybody else on the trip. So it tells you something uh, about <laughs> about the type of the type of people that that we are. Uh, basically, yeah, we met met on the first year university ski trip. We kind of got on like a house on fire, and then we ended up living together for a couple of years in our third and fourth year university in in Glasgow. Um, Whiteout Ski kind of uh, emerged out of us organizing our fourth year university ski trip for 42 of our friends out to out to France. Uh, and basically, we decided to run this ski trip because for the three years previous before our final year, we had to get a coach journey. So like from Glasgow to the south of France is about 30 hours on a bus or a coach or whatever you call it. Oh, my God. Which when you're when you're, when you're 18 is pretty good fun because you can drink. I don't know if this is appropriate on this podcast or not. You can drink 10 beers and then you sleep and then you drink 10 more beers and then you sleep <laughs> and then you get then you get to the ski resort that you're meant to you're meant to be in. But in our fourth year, we said no more. We're not getting on the we're not getting on that bus again we're going to fly everyone out there and we're going to stay at a chalet hotel chalet hotel swimming pool sauna steam room all of your food cooked for you it was kind of a far cry from the uh you know the university trip the summer after we ran that ski trip we had lots of friends or friends or friends come and ask us can we help them run their ski trips uh, we ended up selling kind of hundreds of thousands of pounds worth of ski trips just to friends of friends uh, and we'd never run or booked a holiday for anyone in our lives. Uh, but we made more money selling ski trips than either of us were going to make by taking our grad jobs out of uni. So we kind of picked up the phone, mom, dad, great news. We're going to be entrepreneurs. Uh, and we kind of went on with then starting 100 Hour Holidays, which I'm sure we might come on to later. Did they think it was great news or were they like on the other end of the line crying into the phone like, no? I think they thought we were complete, complete idiots and out of our depth, but I don't think they, they weren't crying too much. I think, you know, my, my parents' philosophy was always, you know, you, well, at a certain age, you've got to learn your own lessons and the, the best way to kind of live life is learning, learning the tough lessons as, as, as quickly as you can. Because uh, lots of people, lots of people don't or don't get the opportunity to. And then, it, you know, I think you, you, you kind of miss out on a lot. And I think we've had some great experiences uh, building Whiteout and then 100 Hour Holidays and then Hollybob. Um, and I think we wouldn't, we definitely wouldn't trade that in for, for the office jobs that we were going to take uh, if we had actually taken our grad jobs back in the day. I love that. Okay, so let's talk about 100-hour holidays, which I think is funny that it's not on your LinkedIn because it's such a good idea. I just wonder... Yeah, keeping, it, keeping it in the back it, pocket. That's exactly you what know, I thought. Like, take, you're just Taking keep... this public now. You're taking this public. <laughs> you're keeping it a secret. Okay, so after Whiteout Ski, you and Angus founded 100-hour holidays, which is such a great idea. I love it so much. How did it work and how did it lead to Hollybob? 100-hour holidays, like very basically, were 100 hours uh, is like a long weekend, so a kind of you know four four-ish days type type thing. And the whole idea was trying to package together highly immersive experiences that um, would be quite difficult to book yourself if you were going to go and like try and piece them together yourself and 
book your flights. So it was things like paella making in Barcelona, where you went out on a fishing boat, you caught the seafood, you brought it back to Barcelona, you learned how to make paella, you did some sightseeing or kite surfing on the north of France, like on the beaches in the north of France, you learned how to kite surf or surfing in Morocco. So it was that kind of thing. And it was a B2C business and it, you know, it kind of, it, it actually did extremely well. Like the whole idea and the brand and the concepts began to take off. But as we, you know, as the business scaled and as we have more people wanting to do these holidays, we realized that, you know, every time someone tried to book, we had to phone the supplier, you know, Joe Surf Lodge in Morocco. <laughs> you know, he's very good at running surf, uh, surf experiences and he's got great dreadlocks, but kind of, you know, getting back to you in a timely manner so you can respond <laughs> to your customer isn't quite his forte. And um, so we basically needed the technology that connect- connected uh, us or 100 Hour Holidays website to our suppliers. Um, and then we kind of so we started building that technology or thinking about how we could build that technology. And then we kind of realized that buying consumers was extremely expensive as well. So is there a way that we could find a way to get access to customers without us having to buy them from Google or Facebook or any of those paid channels? Um, and then that's when we started speaking to secret escapes and kind of different consumer facing um, tour operators or online travel agents in the UK. And we said to them, you know, how about you take our holidays and you sell them and we'll split the commission. Uh, you know, g- genius idea. But uh, what they did, what they did is they came back to us and said two things. Number one, come back to us when you've got technology, because there's no way we're taking these hundred hour holidays from you on an Excel sheet. And then the second <laughs> thing was the second thing was uh, kind of we've got this big problem in the single day, half day experiences space. You know, we've got hundreds of suppliers of you know wine tastings, walking tours, attraction tickets, that we deal with them all offline. Is there any way you could kind of aggregate them into a single platform so we could book everything uh, in one place, which would make their business an awful lot more efficient? Uh, and that was kind of you know the beginnings of of Hollybob, which Hollybob we now call Hollybob, an e-commerce engine for experiences. But it was basically enabling consumer-facing travel businesses like Secret Escapes and others in the UK to access. Uh, experiences and things to do around the world through through a single a single platform. Um, that was in October 2019, and then uh, if anything, if anyone can remember, infamous kind of February 2020, <laughs> a small small catastrophe began. Uh, so we actually went live in February 2020, and then obviously the pandemic hit. But it's it, but it was uh, we managed to survive, and we're still here today. Oh wow! So I want to take a step back for a second because. As I understand it, you are sort of a sales business development person. Angus is kind of a finance guy, or at least those were the office jobs that you had gotten when you were going to go take an office job when you graduated from school. When you decided to start a tech company, what kind of steps did you have to take to get the actual tech built? Like, how did you develop the product? Did you go buy a book and teach yourself how to code, or did you hire someone? Or how? Kind of talk through how that worked. Well, Angus has got a book on his shelf called SQL for Dummies, nice. which is SQL is a database language for 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 those that those that, those that don't know. Um, so we were very very fortunate in that we met. Uh, our CTO at a networking event in Edinburgh uh, at a pizza stand. And <laughs> Ang- actually, it was Angus. Angus was standing at this pizza stand, turned around and got chatting to this guy called, called Graham. And Graham has been with Hollybob for five years now, and he's he's our CTO. Uh, so a very fortunate kind of run-in run in with, with uh, Graham, who... 
uh, kind of very kindly the day after he met Angus, met uh, met Angus and I to give us some advice because at that point we were trying to go and work with a, a, an outsourced tech company to kind of build the prototype. And Graham kind of said he'd seen this so many times that, you know, young founders or founders in general go and try and find like an outsourced tech company to build, you know, the first prototype and it costs them 20,000 pounds or $20,000 and they get nothing in return. Like what they get is, is a shadow of what they need. So Graham very kindly kind of offered his time to, to kind of consult and write us a document. Um, and as kind of good, uh, entrepreneurial founders, we just kept asking him for more and more and more over a period of sort of three or four months. And then he kind of said, you know, look guys, you know, I'll just do it. I'll just do it. I'll, I'll build you the first kind of prototype. And like, yeah. Oh, you're kidding God, me. Thank, thank, thank God. So he built the first prototype and we can still remember when we were, Angus and I were in London, we were going to meet an investor who we were pitching to and Graham said, okay, we've got the first prototype ready. And he showed us uh, like the API and and like the API responding, delivering experiences via the API. And we thought, you know, the world is, you know, the world has changed, you know, the experience. Like angels are singing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and, you know, now we've got sort of engineers all, all over the place doing a huge amount of work and we're still got a backlog and a roadmap which stretches years long. So no, by no means was what delivered, what was delivered in Costa, the end of the, the end of the story. So you, I think, have stakeholders or audiences on multiple sides of the transaction. Can you talk about what problems you you solve what problems holobob solves for different audiences because and the reason i'm asking this is when i first heard about your company i thought i could use it i thought oh cool this is an app i'll just go find it and i know that that's not the case so can you describe it a little bit yeah so um i guess i guess a holobob we're b2b so we we you'll never see the holobob brand as a consumer but we are absolutely obsessed by the consumer. We want the consumer to have the best possible experience uh, when interacting with our technology. But ultimately, we want to enable people to find incredible things to do as seamlessly as possible. You know, and that that's the thing that really tracks through Angus and I's entire journey from whiteout to 100-hour holidays to now Holly Bob is enabling people to access incredible experiences, whether it was skiing or 100-hour holidays or, or now Holly Bob. Um, and kind of what we really try and do and what we looked at in the experiences space, and we've spoken to over 4,000 travelers, is that convenience and curation over-index massively as the two key consumer needs when people are looking to find experiences. Can you talk a little bit more about making those recommendations or curating those experiences? Like I'm sort of to the point in my life where the paradox of choice has beaten me over the head so much that I want everything I interact with to give me a recommendation based on what I know is a million points of data that exist about me in the world, right? So how do you or how did you, I'm not sure where you are in this journey, uh, move from offering experiences sort of on a shelf to becoming a recommendation engine and curating the things that were the best options? Yeah, I think I think we, you know, we're we're still definitely on that journey, and I think we'll be on that journey for the rest of time because, <laughs> uh, you know, tr- I think true personalization is 
uh, an infinitely challenging problem to to solve, and it's changing all the time based on consumer preferences, consumer behavior, you know, what experiences are offered, you know, trends, all, all the rest of it. So I don't think it's anything that you ever solve or you get to an end point. It's something that you're probably always iterating on. Um, but but generally, like, yeah, we started by being manually curating everything in key destinations you know like if it's raining in london what are the top experiences for families how do you kind of put them into a bundle and then display those to to families when you find families how do we find you know the top walking tours or the top cooking classes Uh, and it, it takes a lot of manual work and actually a lot of what we do nowadays uh, is still manual. We still have a lot of people internally kind of spending a lot of time trying to make our data and our understanding of the world um, better and better and better and better because, you know, it, it's something experiences aren't like flights. They're not like hotels in that, you know, a flight has or a plane has seats at the front or has seats at the back. And the seats at the front are usually a bit more expensive than the seats at the back, depending on what airline you're flying on. And like hotels have like a double bed and a king size or a queen size and a TV. Like these are all quite, you know, they're objective. You know, they, they, these are measurements of a thing. Whereas experiences are super subjective. So you need to do a lot of that manually so that then you can train machines in order to in order to kind of do it more, more automatically. So I think we're still very much on the road of, kind of manual curation to automation and and then scaling that up. Um, but I don't think it's a journey that we're going to be done with anytime soon. Well, let me know if you need help with uh, manually testing any of these testing, experiences, yeah, yeah. cooking kind of classes, of any of, of that. that. I'm here to help. This sounds like a good time to take a break. And this break includes a special surprise for you. So be sure to listen When we come back, Craig and I are going to get into the nitty gritty of fundraising for a startup. And then he tells me a wild road trip story that you do not want to miss. Be right back. I am here with Megan Grant, memory creator of Cherish Tours. I am excited to hear about the latest tour you've put together. I wanted to bring some light to another incredible destination. And Panama is that place. There is a robust metropolitan city and beautiful nature. You get the best of both worlds. And I wanted to be able to show that off. Cherish is different from a lot of tours because I really have a personal relationship and experience in the countries we go to. I know that travelers can expect to spend some time in nature. What is the landscape like in Panama? It is very tropical. We go to the islands in the Caribbean, and we also are in Panama City. It's a drastic difference between the two. Panama City, very metropolitan. It's very artsy. But then when you make it to the islands, it's remote. It's very tropical. You're definitely going to get humidity, but you're in a beautiful, lush beach getaway. To book, people go to gocherishtours.com. What else do they need to do? It's really easy. You click the book now button and place your deposit to secure your spot. And exclusively for top floor listeners, you can use the promo code top floor to get $100 off on any of your trips. 
The dates are October of 2023. Go to gocherishtours.com and use promo code TOPFLOOR for $100 off. We like to make sure that our listeners come away from every episode of Top Floor with some practical, tangible tips to try in their businesses or their lives. I'm wondering if you have any tips for other startups who need to raise money, particularly in a sort of unproven vertical. Like to your point, you know, 80% of this business that you're trying to do is still pen and paper or still, you know, phone and fax machine. How do you make the case that taking something from analog to digital is a worthy investment if you don't have competitors? So I think I would encourage uh, people to aim really, really up really, really high and not apologize for doing so. And that comes down to like storytelling. I think a hundred percent you need to think about like stories are the things that people listen to and they can relate to and they can understand. So think about, you know, what aim for the aim for the biggest vision you possibly can, because that's what investors are looking for. They want to see how you're going to change the world and how the world's going to look different after you're, after you're done, because then they can start back calculating as to how much money they might make, <laughs> but make sure that they can like relate to, to what that is and how that, how does that story all hold together? And I think, I think, think about it as a story. Um, because if you think about it as just kind of a pitch or a speech, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't work. Um, so well, and then I think the, the kind of other thing on investment is it's it's a sales exercise ultimately. Like it is, you know, and sales. You speak to anyone in sales, it is probably the, the toughest sales exercise. But you need to have a funnel with lots of people in the funnel and have lots of conversations and bang your head against the wall. You know, to raise our first round, we sent around three thousand emails. Um, kind of to raise our first like seed round. Uh, and that's just a hard work, like hours and hours and days. And it wasn't sexy and it wasn't kind of fun. If anything, it was miserable. But, you know, that's kind of what it what it took. And you hear these success stories of people just, you know, raising 100 million on a pitch deck and no, and no technology, but they are 100% the outliers. And they're lying also. They're lying. Yeah. They're, yeah, they're not exactly. an outlier. Exactly. They're an outlier. <laughs> in my exactly. anyway um do you no, 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 i agree is, is there agree. anything craig that you think like something around this fundraising question of developing i don't know if it's a thick skin or the ability to separate the personal from the professional in that in that particular conversation, I feel like one of the biggest obstacles to people when they're doing fundraising is that they feel like they are personally asking someone for their personal cash and it just feels so personal and embarrassing. Any tips for that? Or does it feel that way to you and you just did it anyway? I actually believe that when you're spending money in your business, you should kind of spend it like it's your own. Like, uh, you know, you should you should have the same respect for kind of uh, a, a kind of investor's cash as as you as you have for your own, which is, I think, a good general attitude to have. But it also goes against like how venture capitalists and how kind of investors often want to work. You know, you you know, speculate to accumulate, and you wouldn't always speculate as aggressively 
with your own capital as kind of investors, as investors want you to. And I think you've got to realize that, you know, and if you're going to kind of achieve the, you know, the broad, ambitious vision that you set out, you're going to have to spend a lot of money to make that happen. So then it's about kind of managing like your risk, your risk tolerance and kind of what you're willing to, to do or not do. They're not doing it for the kind of good of their own health. It's their job in some cases. And in other cases, there's not always selfish desires, but they, they want to see a return on their investment. And you're going to have to work extremely hard night and day and you're going to have to you know spend your weekends working for years to come to to generate that return for that investor this is a transaction in the end and they're trying to make money from your blood sweat and tears but, but they're going to give you money up front to 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 do that so that'd be my one kind of tip but that and the final thing i'd say is that a lot of investors are really nice people so it doesn't mean that there can't be like a relationship with them like in a very and a great relationship and a lot of value passed both ways but when when you're trying to separate out the personal and the professional, I think kind of realizing that it is a transaction and ultimately and someone they're trying to make money out of, out of kind of investing in you is a good way to try and do that. Right. Like it's not just a one-sided favor that their, you know, benevolence is funding your company. Yeah. Um, sure. Speaking of your company, you recently celebrated four years in business. Congratulations. And along the way, you've received a lot of awards and accolades and, you know, top 25 this, et cetera, et cetera. What is a mistake or a stumble that you've taken that you would warn another entrepreneur to avoid? What's behind all these awards? <laughs> What's your secret? I think... Oh, I was going to say a stumble. A stumble. I think, about that. I think we came into this so scared of kind of aiming really high. Like, and, and I, it's not really a mistake as much, but it, it's kind of a lesson that we've learned through the time is that you know, you've got to have confidence in yourself in order to in order to persuade others to have confidence in you. Is there anything that you do to psych yourself up if you're, you know, if you're feeling like, oh, maybe this is a stupid idea after all? Is there anything that you do to change your mindset or remind yourself that you are in fact changing the world? Yeah, I mean, I generally like look at far look how far we've come. I mean, like, you know, every I think that that is the real thing. You know, we've got huge problems, like not huge problems, you like problems that we're dealing with like day in, day out that feel like the world is the world is burning type thing. And uh, and you know, it's felt like that for pretty much every day for the last for the last four years. And I I swear tomorrow is gonna stop and you know, my life's gonna be way easier. But that that day is that day has never has never come. So but I think you know, when I you know, when you have those moments, uh firstly, like appreciate kind of what you've done and recognize how how impressive what you've done it is in some ways and uh, and again don't let that kind of drag into arrogance but it kind of gives you confidence that you're able to do you you are able to do a lot of what you set out and i think the other thing that i do is kind of I, or i think is that not everyone's cut out for this and you know uh kind of diamonds are made diamonds are made like under under pressure type type thing and um you need to grit through it you need to grit your teeth and kind of get on with it and uh, lots of people can't do that and i think that i find that very motivating as like a, a bit of a kind of chip on the shoulder i guess is kind of what keeps you going is that not everyone's cut out cut out for kind of how tough it can be at times and you've got to get through the hard times in order to kind of get to the 
the, the good the good times, which is a bit of a cliche, but I think uh, just recognizing that that is quite motivating for me. It's true. I agree. Okay, we've reached the fortune telling portion of the show. What is one prediction you have about the future of tourism? That ChatGPT is not going to change the face of 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 tourism. Ooh, it's a counterattack. Okay, why do you say that? <laughs> no, I think I, I think uh, generative AI uh, and AI more generally is going to ha- is going to be uh, revolutionary. I, I just don't think in the current in its current format, the way it's been where it's been implemented to date, it's going to kind of. Uh, have the impact that people think it's going to have, especially not in the in the short term. I find it so interesting that an industry that has barely been able to embrace the most simple of technologies is supposedly going to be transformed by lar- large language models. Like I don't really see how that plays out. But we'll see. I agree. Um, if you could wave a magic wand and change one thing about working with destinations, what would it be? Their willingness to adopt adopt tech technology. I think you know uh, destinations, or I guess depends how you define destinations. But if you talk about destination management organizations, like visit New York or visit Scotland or something like that, yeah, I think. Um, I think they have a unique position to, in, or I think they are tasked with empowering and helping their um, the companies that exist in those destinations to be better, to uh, improve their offerings, improve their services to consumers, and embracing technology will enable them to do that. Uh, and I think destinations, if destinations were were willing to be more vocal and more force, forceful with with the off their offerings to to the businesses that exist in those destinations, I think that they could have a lot bigger impact than they re- than they realize, and that would uh, help our business, but it would also help the businesses that uh, that are in those destinations as well. And help the people that are visiting them and make it more fun, right? Yeah, exactly. What is next for you and what's next for Holabob? Uh, we're launching uh, a new marketing platform in the next uh, in the next couple of months, which is uh, going to be pushing out a kind of brand new recommendation engine, which we think is going to be able to uh, allow us to scale up the re- ability to recommend experiences or the right product to the right customer at the right time uh, on a far more global scale than we have been able to to date because currently the models we've been building have been quite localized to single destinations. Okay, folks, before we tell Craig goodbye, we are going to head down to the loading dock where all of the best stories get told. Going down. Craig, what's a story you would only tell me on the loading dock? When I was in third year university, we drove from, uh, or myself and three friends drove from London to Eastern Mongolia. Um, and if anyone knows, I've, I've ever seen a world map. It's you know, it's, it's a very, it's a very long way away. Oh it's my kind of gosh! Eastern, like like similar latitude latitude to like eastern russia so go look at a map you'll be able to see how far it is we went all the way down through europe across turkey you know iran uh turkmenistan which is the fifth most brutal dictatorship in the world uh, uzbekistan kazakhstan russia and then into mongolia um yeah. and basically when we 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 got we got to Mongolia and my a friend of mine Harry was driving the car and it was a Skoda Fabia 
Um, it was a one liter Skoda Fabio. So if, if for those of you who don't know a Skoda Fabio, go give it a Google. It was quite uh, a tiny little car. Um, and we were driving that and basically Harry managed to drive it into a ditch and completely bust, completely bust the radiator. So the, you know, the radiator had a huge hole in it, which basically meant that we couldn't drive the car for more than about 15 minutes because the engine, uh, the engine would overheat. So, you know, we, at one stage we were kind of chewing, chewing gum and cutting Harry's hair off and kind of mixing the hair in with the chewing gum to try and fill the holes. No, in sir. This, in, 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 in this in this radiator and we'd poured like six bottles of radwell in this radiator to kind of try and get this thing to stop leaking none none of which worked i would add and we were about a thousand or 1500 miles away from the next city because mongolia's uh full of nothing uh lots of horses but not very many mechanics <laughs> so we basically ended up getting um towed through mongolia by uh, these two english guys and it took us five days of, of being towed uh, through through Mongolia. And on the fourth night, we were all camping, and we basically heard on like the, they they were on the phone to their their parents back in or or their friends or whoever. And you could hear the dad is like, "Leave the leave them like you know you've got your own trip to go on like leave them they'll they'll sort themselves out." And they were like, "God God bless these guys." They're like, "No, we're going to stay with them. We're going to make sure they get to the they get to the end." And basically on the fifth day we were getting dragged up this hill and the tow rope snapped and if you imagine the kind of you know on a on a tow rope there's a massive hook which by basically attaches to the attaches one car to the other and the hook went straight through their back window no! and landed and landed on the lap of the lap of the driver which thank god he wasn't he wasn't hurt because you know the vol- the velocity right? and, like, the tension that was going through so basically landed on the landed on the kind of lap of the 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 driver of the car and we were all sitting there you know like light the rabbits in the head like oh my god you know he's dead i mean i you feel know, like we're, i'm we're, about we're, to have a heart attack middle, right now in the middle of a goal, you know. and anyway they got out of the car both of them were alive and they were like that's it and they just drove off, <laughs> leaving us, leaving us in one uh, in, in Mongolia, and, and we basically had like a hundred mile drive to the next city. And thankfully, the car made it, and then we managed to fix the radiator. And uh, we then drove the car all the way back from Mongolia to 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 London, um, which was which was which was great. This is the worst, best story that I've ever heard. I can't believe that you're still alive. Why did you go to Mongolia? Who? What? What? I just don't even understand any of this. I mean, were you scared or did you just think like, this is an adventure, we'll get through it? I mean, I think youthful, youthful enthusiasm kind of uh, got, got us through it. Well, Craig Everett, I am so glad that you're still alive. Thank you so much for being here. I know that our listeners got a lot out of our conversation, including a full-blown panic attack, which I certainly did. And thank you for writing up to the top floor. Thanks for having me, Susan. Thank you for listening. You can find the show notes at topfloorpodcast.com forward slash episode forward slash 98. Top Floor is produced by John Albano, who also composed and performed our elevated elevator music with vocals by Cameron Albano. 
If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues after you leave us a five-star review. You can subscribe to Top Floor on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Thanks for listening to the Top Floor Podcast at www.topfloorpodcast.com. Have a hospitality marketing question? Reach us at 850-404-9630 to be featured in a future episode. 